Welcome to the latest episode of the Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament. And your two most common hosts are here, myself, Blaine Dowler. And Alex Case. And this time around, we're talking about Tron Legacy, the sequel to Tron, which we discussed two weeks ago today. Right, so the usual format is discussing our history with these films. I'm guessing that's going to be a short discussion this time around. Yeah, I guessing this film is fairly recent. And by fairly recent, I mean it's from 2010. I saw this film in the theater with a bunch of friends. We generally really enjoyed the movie. Thought it was great. There was kind of some bouncing back and forth on whether we liked it more or less than the original Tron. But we all liked it. The visuals were great. The soundtrack was great. I probably have a bit more to discuss history-wise here because I was sort of able to jump onto the viral marketing train for the movie, but not really for the sort of degree of being able to follow it because... Um, some of the stuff that they did with the viral marketing, and I'll discuss this when we actually get, get around to that, required certain degree of things which most people don't have lying around the house, like older magnetic tape readers and that sort of stuff. There was a um, card which I received when I tried to get in the viral marketing stuff where if you ran it through a certain type of magnetic tape reader or something like that, it would get you a code which you would then plug into a website that would get you an invite to go to a replica of Flynn's Arcade at the 2000, either 2009 or 2010 San Diego Comic Con. And unfortunately I did not have that so I couldn't get my code so I couldn't go to San So when I went to San Diego Comic Con that year, I couldn't actually go to Flynn's Arcade which kind of bummed me out. Yeah, I believe that was the 2010 SDCC. I haven't actually been to any of them. My history with the film is similar. Uh, a bunch of friends and I were there opening night. This is early in the age of the uh, assigned seating theaters outside of New York and L.A. It took a few years before those migrated out to other communities, about 15 years, actually, before they were fairly common. I remember that distinctly because I was having a hard time sleeping one night, woke up, and at 3 a.m. the email came in saying, okay, seats are now available a month in advance. I logged in about 17 minutes after seats went on sale, and there was a stripe right down the middle of the theater that had already been purchased. <laughs> so we've moved from getting good seats from being the first in line to getting good seats by being the first online. And this was part of that era. We did get decent seats. We were just slightly off-center. And it was, as I said, assigned seating, which also means we had the extra leg room, the 3D glasses for the 3D effects in this, and more so. And this is probably the first of the modern 3D era where I felt the 3D was used well. If you go back to, say, Alice in Wonderland, I had real issues with that 3D. The CGI stuff looked good in 3D, but Alice herself looked like a paper doll. So the most real thing in the movie actually had the least real appearance because of the way that they did it, where they just sort of superimposed the 2D film on the plane. And that happened a lot because a lot of movies at the time were made into 3D in post-production. And this is one of the first that was filmed with legitimately 3D cameras from the start. So they're not taking one camera and having computers extrapolate based on shadows and whatnot to figure out where they would have been and what the size was and have programmers finesse it and fine-tune it. This one was outright recorded in 3D. So they had two lenses to produce a stereoscopic effect that translates to the film. And it, you get some of the more natural 3D effects. It was one of the first cases where the 3D wasn't just a series of 2D planes stacked on each other, but actual 3D all the way through. Yeah, and additionally, they, they, the movie uses 3D in a very creative fashion. The scenes in the real world are filmed generally in 2D. And when you go into the digital world, everything is in 3D. In fact, remember, there was a dis went to see the movie, a little disclaimer at the beginning of the movie, basically saying, yeah, there are some parts at the start of the movie that are going to be in 2D, you will know when it goes to 3D, or something like that. 
Yeah, there's a similar disclaimer on the 3D Blu-ray, which is what I watched to refresh my memory for this podcast, where it explicitly states some scenes were shot in 2D, some scenes are seen in 3D. This is the intention of the filmmakers. It is not a problem with your system, which is also their way of saying, and it's not a problem with their disc. Don't phone us for refunds. <laughs> and it was an interesting choice. It's also one of the few movies that changes aspect ratios during it, and that's part of what we have. Most people are familiar with at least two aspect ratios. There was a time when they just thought there was TV and widescreen. At least that's what a lot of the general public knew, was you had the 4 by 3 shape of the TV, and then there was movie widescreen, and people didn't necessarily realize that there's multiple options for widescreen in theaters. Now we have widescreen TVs, so some widescreen movies fill your widescreen TV, others do not. They're more aware of that. This uses both of the most common widescreen aspect ratios. So the real-world scenes aren't just 2D, they're 2.35 to 1, but that's matted or mapped onto the 1.85 to 1 screen. So in the audience, when you're watching it, the image being projected is 1.85 to 1, but they've got black stripes across the top and bottom. And when you go into the computer world, then they not only switch it to 3D, but they actually open up that aspect ratio. So more of the screen is covered, which is unusual. Typically, when they're changing the aspect ratio, the wider one is considered to show you more because normally the picture goes right from the top of the screen down to the bottom. So to get that wider aspect ratio, they expand the sides. In this one, they contract the top and bottom, but leave the, th the sides the same which was an interesting and very uncommon choice. I can only think of two movies in recent years that have actually changed the aspect ratio during the film, and they're both Disney films from around this era. The other one was uh, Dream Sequence and Home on the Range. Uh -huh. So again, it does really bring us into that world. And in doing so, it does a lot to establish the differences between the real world and 3D world, not just with that striking visuals that we had from the first one that it was so well known for, but for this. And that's part of the reason it took so long to put this movie together. It was promoted three consecutive years at San Diego Comic-Con, because typically movies are about a six-week shoot, sometimes eight weeks, meaning that's how long that the principal actors and performers are spending recording their scenes and their dialogue in front of the cameras. There's a little bit of work in pre-production, how much depends on the movie and whether it's on sets or on location and whatnot. And then there's the post-production, where you do the editing, the scoring. Now, way back when they first started making the two-hour movies, we'd be looking at a 10-day shoot to do a film, two to three days of post-production, and maybe one or two days of pre-production. That expanded. So in the 80s, when the original Tron came out, the average post-production time was half of the actual shooting time. So if you're doing a normal drama where you're just doing editing and scoring and a lot of visual effects or anything like that, a six-week shoot would mean three weeks of post-production. Special effects movies tend to have more post-production. Nowadays, they're actually doing them concurrently, so they film the visual effects-heavy scenes first so the effects guys can get on them right away, and then the lighter visual effects scenes come later. This one, the differences between the shooting time and the post-production time are some of the most extreme I have ever heard. They spend a total of 64 days shooting. So if they're doing a six-day-a-week shoot, that's about 10 weeks. I suspect the last few weeks were more like 11 days to keep it down to a certain length of the shoot. And then after 64 days of filming, they had a 68-week post-production period, which is just, it's huge. You go from a 10-week shoot into a little over a year in post-production. Yeah, that is fairly impressive. I mean, to think of movies of that long of a post-production period, I mean... Very likely Avatar. Probably the... I don't know about the post-production period was for the Star Wars movies. Probably comparable, but that's probably the main thing. Is like You get into like Star Wars movies, the big, very special effects-heavy movies like that, are the ones which will likely have the most 
heavy post-production. Productive ones where you're building the whole a world from whole cloth, as opposed to uh, as opposed to say something like Transformers, where you're inserting robots among sort of existing locations and adding some carnage. If that makes any sense. Yeah, and sometimes it's even inserting them over existing non-existent locations. Yeah. If you pay close attention, there are backgrounds in Transformers that were first filmed for Pearl Harbor, for example. True. And another Michael Bay film. So he tends to borrow a lot from his previous work. Uh, so probably one thing we mentioned before we get into Tron Legacy itself is this sort of isn't it, but isn't the first sequel that was made to Tron in the 90s, like, like late 90s, early 2000s, they made a, Disney Interactive made a game called Tron 2.0 done with Monolith, who is the company who also did No One Lives Forever games and the um, and the Fear games, and it was basically sort of a semi-first-person shootery thing, which instead of following Kevin Flynn's son and Kevin, Kevin Flynn, it involved, uh, focused on Alan Bradley and his son, who was Nick, I don't know if they gave his real first name, but in the game he's called Jet, uh, Jet Bradley, and... Both Alan and Jet end up inside the computer system at Incom due to some nasty other company trying to do a hostile takeover and that sort of thing, both uh, through the computer system. And so it is kind of interesting because while Tron himself does not really appear in the game, from what I recall, instead you have Tron's programmer ending up in the digital world, though you're not playing as him. You're playing, uh, he's kind of your sidekick for the game. However, that game got kind of made, well, not kind of, got made non-canonical with the release of Tron Legacy. Some people were upset by this, but people get upset by anything on the, everything on the internet, so, eh. Yeah, you can even question whether Tron Legacy is canonical, because the Tron Uprising series uses some of the same backstory, but then takes it in a completely different direction. I saw the first two episodes when they were offered free through the iTunes store, and I enjoyed them, but by the time you're done those two episodes, you realize Tron Legacy and Tron Uprising can't exist in the same universe, even though they have some of the same backstory. Now, before we get too much further, we should do a quick plot summary and go through some of the backstory and what's going on in this. As Alex has said, they tried bringing Tron back in video games a couple of times. The original video game did so well that it produced a sequel in the 1980s. And in fact, both of those video games from the 1980s outgrossed the original movie. So this was in the early 80s when they were really starting to get a handle on the marketing, at least in North America. The United Kingdom had already seen the power of marketing with the Dalek mania in the 1960s. But this is where a lot of North American things, especially things aimed at children, was really gearing up. Now, unfortunately, they didn't really catch on the way they wanted to. So you didn't see Tron action figures or other things which could have helped buoy the franchise. So it wasn't until the 1990s when you started getting the more immersive video game environments that it really came back. And when they were bringing this Tron out, they did a few partnerships. So this was shortly after Disney acquired Marvel. And one of the first comics that they put out was a two-issue Tron Legacy sort of prequel series. It's enjoyable enough, but it doesn't stand on its own very well. In order to understand what's going on when you pick up that first issue, you really need to have seen the first Tron. And by the time you're done the second issue of two, you still don't have a complete series or a complete story. You really need to see the sequel to see what's going on. So it does cover a lot of backstory, and those who are wondering about more of the details of the backstory and the events between the movies would probably quite enjoy this. Most of it does take place on the grid, and those two issues are worth tracking down just for that purpose. So there was certainly that going in. Now, when it came to the movie itself, this does have a few homages, not just on screen, but in terms of production to the original Tron. In the original Tron, Steven Lisberger was a first-time screenwriter 
and for all intents and purposes, he was a first-time director. His producing partners kept telling Disney, no, 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 he's had director experience, he's had director experience, but if you really dig into it, his director experience was doing a couple of animated shorts for a cheap TV show, a nowhere near feature film level. The same is actually true of the director of this film. So Joseph Kaczynski, or Joseph Kaczynski stepped in as director of Tron Legacy, and this is his directorial debut. So that is a bit of a risk. And we can talk about whether or not that paid off in the long run. It does have some other interesting choices. They went a different route. We talked about last time how they used a lot of rotoscoping. So to get the glowing parts on the costumes, they were all just walking around in white leotards that had black etched on them in Sharpies. And then in post-production, they went through it like an animation studio and painted the bright colors on them frame by frame. That's not the way they did it in Tron Legacy. The actors that you see in those costumes are wearing very uncomfortable and surprisingly hot costumes because they were essentially lit up. So when the costumes are glowing, that's not a post-production effect. These people are wearing costumes that are glowing, running off a battery. The battery could power these costumes for 12 minutes, and that's it. So they flick them on right before the director says action, and they flick them off right after he says cut. And when they needed to rest wearing these incredibly hot costumes, they couldn't sit down because a normal sitting pose would break the circuitry in these outfits. So they were typically just leaning against a plank under air conditioning. And they had air conditioning piped in in tubes to try and keep these actors cool. So it was a very unpleasant 64-day shoot for them. You wouldn't get that by watching them on screen. And that's one thing I got to give them a lot of credit for. These are incredibly uncomfortable costumes. To the point where Olivia Wilde had to go back for 12 fittings of her costumes. Often redesigning her costume between action sequences. Because the kind of posing and motions she needed to do for this action sequence. Would break the circuitry for the next action sequence. So they were doing internal redesigns every time she stepped into action. And there probably would have been similar things being done with some of the stunt performers as well, because another big change here is the is the action scenes we get in this movie are much more fluid, I, mean, I don't know if the word, but, but dynamic than the action scenes in the uh, original Tron, where it's definitely been influenced by the evolution of action in movies since the original Tron. We have very parkour-inspired moves in some of the Grid War sequences, with the running up the walls and flips and that sort of thing. There's a certain, there's, you can see a kind of bit of wire work going on with some of the other work, action scenes as well, kind of drawing from some of the stuff we've seen, we, that have come, I can't speak, that's come from the Matrix in terms of how the Matrix presented action sequences. So, uh, because of that, I could very easily see them running into problems with, oh, we need to redo the costume for, for example, Rinsler, which is the, the sort of enforcer for the film's big bad. Uh, we have to redo his costume again. Yeah, and there there were issues with that. Everyone had to go back and do some redesigns and reshoots if they had the action role. Olivia Wilde just had to do more than others because they also wanted to basically show off her figure more so than they did with the others. So they had to work around exposed skin and things like that a lot more often with her. So just that point where they decided, okay, if you're going to have a female romantic lead, then you really need to show off a great body for her. That made their job just that much more difficult. Now, in terms of the original cast and characters, the basic idea behind it is that of the original cast, we only see two of them that have continued through. Jeff Bridges reappears as Kevin Flynn as well as Clue, and he actually did play Clue in the first one. We said we'd come back to that. It was very brief early on when he was trying to get into NCOM in the opening sequence. That character was called Clue. 
So he's been missing for a while. His son, Sam Flynn, now is the controlling partner of NCOM, but he's taking a very hands-off approach. So even though he can step in and run the company anytime he likes, he's been sort of letting them run themselves. And the people in charge are taking the company in a direction that Kevin Flynn would not have agreed with or approved of. He does play a little prank. What's basically he's done here is that he's taken what to me seems to be a pretty significant riff on the latest version of Windows and released it free to the world, not just by releasing ISO images or the compiled versions, but by releasing the source code. So in theory, anyone with a compiler can get this for free, which I think is actually going to be less of a pirate problem than it's appeared on screen. Everyone's panicking, oh, this is out, it's our most secure operating system yet. This is a big panic, but it's not one that Joe Schmuck can download and install on his own. It's someone who needs to be able to put program code together and compile it to make a program, which is not that difficult. It's pretty easy and straightforward to find, but... You have to know where to look and want to look for it. A lot of people would. And also compiling code from our experience is a fairly time-intensive process. It's the kind of thing, particularly if you're compiling an operating system, it's like, okay, get everything set up, hit, click the compile button, and um, who's up for dinner in a movie? <laughs> yeah, that is the case. So it's, I mean, the, the piracy in this one is definitely only a problem with a, a certain segment of the population, but it's out there. The odd part about that scene, there's a character played by a significant actor who was uncredited. The major human villain in the first movie was Dillinger. In this film, his son, played by Cillian Murphy, who a lot of people would know better as Scarecrow from the Chris Nolan Batman films, he plays the son of Dillinger. And he's in this saying, okay, run with it, pretend this was your plan all along. And he walks out of the office and he's never seen or heard from again. That was setting up what they hoped would be a third Tron film. Well, the movie is still in production or pre-production, so we may still get that third Tron film, knock on wood. Yeah, we may. We'll talk about that a little bit later when we wrap up looking at how things went at the box office and all of that as we typically do. One of the people in that boardroom meeting when this prank gets played is Alan Bradley, played by Bruce Boxleitner, who also played Tron in the original. He's the only other returning cast member. And we learn that after Kevin's disappearance, he became something of a surrogate father to Sam. And he goes and talks to Sam to encourage him to take a more active role in NCOM and take the company in a direction that his father would have approved of. And also to let him know, hey, he got a message from Kevin Flynn. He was actually paged by the office number at his arcade. Which opens up the first few logic questions for me, because he says that office phone number has been disconnected for years. And yet when Sam goes to his office, the arcade machines are there, the power bill is apparently getting paid, even though nothing is turned on. Because when he turns on the master breaker, the jukebox immediately starts playing, the arcade machines light up. So someone is still providing power to the building. And it's not like he comes here and plays the game or anything on a regular basis, not with the amount of dust that is so clearly coating everything. So to me, that's a bit of a snag. If the phone number is disconnected, why does it still have power? Or if it still has power, why is the phone number disconnected? It's been preserved to some level, but not all levels. Maybe they cut the phone because they knew they weren't going to be there to answer it, but then why keep the power? If they wanted to preserve it, I understand paying rent on the building. I don't understand why all the other bills were paid. Not unless, you know, maybe he called the power company and had them turn it back on before he came out and we just didn't see that scene. I don't know, but that's something that is an issue. Anyway, when he's there, he sees the scratches on the floor under the Tron machine, and that's when Sam realizes there's a whole secret room in here. Goes down there, sees this computer that has a 20-year and change uptime, and logs on and ends up getting blasted into the digital world, into the new grid. 
so there is a new digital world, even though the old one, all the other machines were connected. So in the MCP, he could reach out and acquire programs from the U.S. government or from other countries and bring them into that grid. Here they created a new grid, even though it's all part of the same network. So there's some question of how that works. We can also talk about how the physics of this grid is different from the physics of the original, because there are some distinct differences here. If I was to make a guess as far as for the difference is... I I got a sneaking hunch that the original gr- that the grid on the new computer, if it has any sort of well, it has to have some sort of outside connection. We'll get into that in a bit. It's probably it's probably a much more limited one because I, I think the Encom corporate grid would have been a corp would have been a, a corporate grid where they probably would have had I don't know what the um, 80s equivalent of a high speed internet connection would have been. They, I don't think they had DSL. They invented DSL yet, but they had some stuff like that. I think. Yeah, they had T1s and trunk lines and the like. Okay, so Incom probably would have had a T. Would have had for an organization that size. They probably have had something T1 related or something like a T1 or something like that. Whereas for this, depending on when Kevin Flynn set it up, it probably would have best been dial-up. Uh, it's it's possible, but if we look at how he was hacking into the MCOM computers in the first movie, there's no visible delay between typing and the feedback. That's true. And at the time, if you're doing dial-up, it probably would have been about 300 baud. And that's slow enough that when you get a professional programmer typing in, you will notice the delay. So he's he's got some sort of high-speed line already established between himself and MCOM. So th- there's something there. A lot of this is probably just sort of movie shorthand so that the audience doesn't have to sit there and realistically wait for delays. All right. So, you know, there are a number of things that they have in here that work pretty well. Some that don't. I did like, in this case, when he gets pulled into the digital world, it's a much more rapid process. And that's something I complained about the first time, is it's just hard to pull someone in there. This time we don't see it broken down grid by grid. We don't see almost the 3D pixelization of the character. It's just freeze frame, a quick visual effect, and then he's in the computer world. Uh-huh. And even then, when Sam ends up in the computer world, it, it, it is neat so fast that he doesn't really quite notice what's going on. It's like, huh, everything looks different. I'm clearly somewhere else, but it looks like the room I just, it looks kind of like the room I just left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this time it is a, sort of a 3D model of Flynn's in the grid, which I assume Kevin just hard-coded to make that happen, because there's no other reason to do that. And this is a, a different world. It's the first difference I noticed going in is that the grid has cloud cloud features. The original Tron, there were no clouds because there's no atmosphere. There was no real humidity. They had the lakes that they used to draw the their power from, but there was no indication that they had weather. This world has clouds, which indicates the grid has weather, which opens up a whole lot of questions for me. How do the clouds form? What do they do? What do they represent? How do the users perceive it when there's a storm in the grid? There's a lot that could be explored in the sequels that way. We also talked about before how the characters in there feel gravity, even though there is no source of gravity in a digital world. It's a representation. When Sam Flynn gets sent to play the games, he is actually subjected at one point in the games to modifiable gravity. So they have some gravitational control. It's like the grid has been programmed to represent the physical world but they can choose to override it. So when he's fighting, they reverse gravity within one of the the fighting areas, which is interesting in itself when you find out that the crowds that were cheering when they were playing that disc combat game, those were not extras that were recorded when they were producing the movie for the movie. That's the San Diego Comic-Con crowd. Yep. So the the people in San Diego Comic-Con had their cheers and their reactions superimposed in the movie. So if you were at that panel and you were out there calling with everyone else and cheering out, you're in the movie. 
Yeah, it does have some interesting choices. There's some interesting casting once we get into the grid this time. We see a lot of characters who are not necessarily model after programmers, or if they are, we haven't met those programmers. The early group are the, the four sirens that help strip Sam Flynn of his outside clothes and put him into a gaming outfit, which again makes me question, why does he seem so wearing these clothes when he gets in there? If they cut them off and remove them, why is he still wearing those clothes when he gets out? And the sirens themselves, there's Bo Garrett, who plays Jem, and we see her a few times through the course of the movie. She becomes a more prominent character. And of the sirens 2, 3, and 4, Siren 2 is probably recognized by a few people, played by Sarinda Swan, who is also Zatanna Zatara on Smallville, and Aphrodite in the first Percy Jackson film, which came out the same year as Tron Legacy, and played similar characters in other movies. Now, this is also the point in the movie where probably it's a great time to talk about the soundtrack. Daft Punk was hired to do the soundtrack. Daft Punk is a French electronica duo, and I'm going to horrifically mangle their names in a moment. But they're were ba- um, they were big fans of the movie, and they were hired to do the, to do the soundtrack. And when they were approached with the job, they basically kind of interviewed the producers about as much as the producers interviewed them. So, and, and so we got into bits of, of their sort of electronic work in the course of the earlier parts of the movie in the real world. But here, in the when Sam gets the new outfit on him, he gets his, his grid outfit, we kind of get this interesting combination of the Daft Punk sound with the electronic tones and the their score combined with a, the rhythm of the sirens so they get the outfit set up. And it's kind of a great combination of the sirens providing the rhythm for the scene while the music builds off the rhythm of their movements and their footsteps and that sort of thing. And so I'll I'll give a shot at the, at the names of the two people here. If you want, Blaine, if you want to try to better pronounce it, since while you're Western Canadian, you probably have more exposure with actual French than I have. Um, I tend to, as an American, I tend to default to trying to interpret French in the context of Spanish, because I have more exposure to that. I have, uh, I'm trying to guess, as Guy Manuel de Homem Cristo and Thomas Bangalter. Yeah, the Bangalte. Bangalte. Yeah, there's very few E consonant endings where the consonant is pronounced in French. Uh, so I would say it's uh, probably Thomas Bangalte and uh, Guy Manuel de Olam Cristo. Okay. So they, yeah, so this is where their score kind of really takes the forefront. We've gotten bits and pieces of it earlier, but once we get to this sequence on the grid, is it's, it's really, really pronounced on the film soundtrack. And yeah, the, the action and the music can like reach really intertwined. And this this actually leads into the uh, the new version of the um, various grid battles and stuff from the uh, first movie. The ILI is gone. We have, now have uh, disc wars and new light cycles. Yeah, and these light cycles can turn at angles other than 90 degrees and get smooth curves and they move in three dimensions. So the grid has definitely been upgraded, which is what you would expect especially when you have computer programmers. Now, there are some things going on inside the grid that really stand out. In terms of the visual effects, when we say that Jeff Bridges is playing both Kevin Flynn and Clue, he is playing both, but Clue used a lot of CGI on the face. The idea is that programs don't age, even though the programmers do. So Kevin Flynn is aging while he's living inside the grid. And even though time, he experiences greater time within the grid than he does outside. So if he if he's in the grid for one day, as far as the outer world is concerned, he lives more than one day inside, even though he only ages one day. But Clue does not age. And the way they did that with the actor 
was by actually using the same technology for the curious case of Benjamin Button. They had four high-definition cameras pointed at his face while he's wearing a helmet, playing Clue. And then those cameras were mapping his facial expressions. And they did a CG model of a younger Jeff Bridges and had the computers distort his face with the same motions that you get when he's talking as his older self. So it works fairly well, but to me it's never truly convincing. Every time I see the younger Kevin Flynn in or out of the grid, I see a CGI model of Jeff Bridges. I don't see a young Jeff Bridges, which is not bad for Clue. It's a little inconsistent because everybody else is exactly who they are. And it does strike me as a little more problematic when you get the flashback sequence early on and you see him as his young self. I don't know what the makers could have done to do a better job aside from just outright recasting, which you also don't want to do because that would look significantly less like Jeff Bridges. Yeah. If you recast him. So this is probably the best available solution, but I personally don't think the technology was quite ready to do what they were trying to do with it at this time, at least not with the time and budgets that they had available. Uh, also in the sequence I forgot to mention, the other really big difference, like really pronounced difference from the original movie, is how they changed how de-resolutions work. In the original Tron, when the character was de-res, died, they basically just kind of glowed and disappeared and actually looked like a bit of a tran- of the transpo- transporter effect from Star Trek, kind of. Whereas in Tron Legacy, they don't just kind of flash and disappear. They are smashed into hundreds and hundreds of little voxels. And in a way, it's kind of the most gruesome Disney's ever gotten in a PG or PG-13 rated movie because you're basically seeing a person smashed to bits. It's just that the bits aren't like chunks. They're, they're, they're like small glass cubes. But it does have a kind of horrific effect particularly because it's not just, oh, well, because there's physics to how the, the, the cubes smash to bits. Whether it's, like, somebody getting chopped in half by a disc or something or something else happening. There's sort of a, a consistency to it or something. And, and so it's, I thought it was a, a great effect, but I could see some parents think, oh, this is the, the relatively bloodless violence, bloodless, not very gruesome violence of the original Tron, and, being, and then coming to Tron Legacy and being somewhat surprised. Yeah, the difference in the de-resolution effects, it definitely gives their bodies more substance. It makes the programs feel more real when they die. I think, to me, that's the, the big thing, because it instead of just fading out when you have little bits and pieces bouncing and acting in a way as though they have mass, again, it, it makes them seem more substantial and makes them a little more real. So, yeah, I would agree it does have a bigger impact this time than it did last time. And we also see that that is strictly for the programmers. When Sam Flynn is injured, he bleeds. And that actually gives Rinsler a bit of pause when that happens. And we'll probably get to that point in this plot summary as to why Rinsler would react that way. Just in case you hadn't figured it out, although I'm hoping if you're listening to these podcasts, you've already seen the movie because everything will be spoiled. Yeah. When we're discussing the films, we'll get there. But that is our first hint as to who Rinsler is and where he came from. Or second, if you pay close attention to his costume design. Yeah. At any rate, Quora appears for the first time here. So she comes out of nowhere in kind of like a Batmobile Tumblr style light cycle. It does seem to be inspired by the Tumblr from the new Batman. At least that's what it struck me as. The light buggy. Yeah, the fastest one on the grid. She grabs Sam Flynn and takes him out of the area where the other vehicles can exist. So there is sort of a no man's land where technology can exist that's not created by programs or their programmers. And takes Sam to meet his father Kevin. And this is where we get the backstory and learn that Kevin Flynn didn't choose to abandon Sam, 
But Clue, his right-hand man in the program that was helping him to build this grid along with Tron, betrayed him and took over. And Kevin Flynn got away because Tron stayed behind to fight for Kevin Flynn's life. Because as we know, Tron fights for the users. And now Kevin Flynn, he's not the fighter he was when we saw him in the first one. It feels like a different character to me in a lot of ways. He's very zen now, and his plan is to sit back, do nothing, and let the program stage their own revolution. And, you know, his identity disc will give Clue the ability to get out into the real world and start trying to take over there. So he'd rather just keep that out of play, stay where Clue can't reach him, and let the other guys take out Clue. So he's been unable to return to the real world without risking Clue escaping with what he needs to take over the real world instead. Yeah, I heard some people compare Jeff Bridges' performance as Kevin Flynn here to The Big Lebowski. And I'll say there is something kind of dudish about Flynn here. He, he, for starter, someone describing his plan as the Flynn abides. Yeah, I can see that. It is very zen, to the point that he's even playing Go with Korra. Go being the the Asian strategy game, similar to chess and checkers, but complex enough that they haven't really gotten computers up to the point of the best human players. So the best chess computer on the planet can go toe-to-toe with the best human chess player on the planet. The best Go players on the planet will wipe the floor with the best computer Go programs on the planet. So that is something that, I don't know, people are saying, well, computers haven't gotten the hang of Go, and that's why people are better than computers. To me, I'm thinking computer programmers haven't gotten quite the same hang of Go, or at least haven't got the dedicated resources to trying to beat them in Go, as they have for the other ones. I'd Still, any game has rules, and it has logic, and there's... The challenge with Go is that you have so many more options available to you at any point in the game than you have with chess or checkers. That it's just harder to have a computer program that looks far enough ahead to take into account every possibility and bring them all together. Indeed. So through this scene where we also get probably one of the most hilariously awkward uh, dinner table conversations in in Disney film history, if not film history in general, with Sam, Kevin, and Cora having dinner and Sam bringing Kevin up to speed on Sam's life for the past 20 or so years since Kevin disappeared. Uh, there's a great bit here where Sam mentions he dropped out of Stanford and Cora kind of starts laughing as she thinks it's a joke and then she kind of realizes it's not a joke and then she's not sure how to react. Mm-hmm. And she may not even realize what dropping out means in terms of that slang. Yeah. She clearly is naive when it comes to the real world. Like, do you know Jules Verne? Oh, yeah. What's he like? Which is a good joke. But you look at that in the way Kevin Flynn is bringing things in. He clearly still has access to the grid. He has a whole collection of classic books for Cora to learn and or to read and to learn about the outside world. But if he's creating them, he's probably using some of the user power that he had in the first one that he demonstrates again here that Sam never seems to quite try to do. So I get why he wouldn't really attempt it early on, but after seeing his dad just wave his hands and do things, I'm not sure why Sam didn't really try to do more of that later. He still behaves largely like a program throughout the course of the film. But if Kevin is able to bring in the information and the text of these books to create copies for Cora to read, then he still has access to information and programs within the grid. So I'm not sure why he, again, wasn't trying to orchestrate and drive the revolution from out of Clue's reach to get that done, especially if he knows he has a son he wants to get back to. Um, I'd make a guess, because the books we see on the shelf all are public domain stuff. There is an entire possibility that he actually, that he might have kind of put them in in plain text format or something like that very early on when he was building the system. 
Yeah, he might have already had them there just for his own sake and his own reading before the, the uprising happened. I mean, it's entirely possible that in the Tron universe, Kevin Flynn started Project Gutenberg. <laughs> it is, yeah. Yeah, or at least used it, because Project Gutenberg may be older than that. I'm not sure. I'd have to check the history of Project Gutenberg. Yeah. But this is, overall, it is an enjoyable movie. It does follow, from the logical story standpoint, from the original. It certainly had the blessing of Steve Lisberger, who acted as producer in this film, as well as a bartender. Yep, in the End of Line Club, which also features the cameo appearance by Daft Punk as the club DJs. Yeah, so it, it did do fairly well. That scene is... I found it was a little too predictable in terms of the reveal of who they're talking about and talking to, you know, you're here's the if you want to arrange a meeting with so and so you have to go through his front piece or his front man. And we've seen so many movies, especially in the cyberpunk genre where that front man really is the guy. I mean, I just don't. Yeah, though, Michael Sheen is really enjoyable as Casper. He kind of I'm not sure who chews more scenery in this movie. Michael Sheen in his very few scenes as Caster, or Jeff Bridges as Clue, particularly in his, some of his more villainous moments. Yeah, Caster is definitely a unique personality, which really makes me wonder what kind of program was he before all this started going on. Yeah, I remember, the director, I remember um, Sheen commented that he kind of based the character on a bit of David Bowie in his Ziggy Stardust persona, and oh, I forget who the actress was. Oh, shoot. May West. May West, yes. Which, which really fits. If kind of meant, Casper was meant to be born as sort of an entertainment program or entertainer program, which fits, he's running a club. I could see that being a, being modeled, thinking, okay, what are the personalities of two popular real-world entertainers, one historical in the case of David Bowie, particularly when the program was set, when this grid was set up, would possibly a current major entertainer. I mean, Bowie's major now, but in terms of the Ziggy Stardust persona, taking those two personalities and combining them together. Yeah, it it is a, an experience, and it, it's a lively character. I just found the shocking reveal to be not at all shocking and entirely what I expected the reveal to be. Yeah, for me, the shocking the shocking reveal, but the reveal was less, oh, Castor and Zeus are the same person, but oh, Castor's selling you out to Clue. I mean, again, it's not too much of a, of a big reveal either, because the other major cyberpunk trope, trope is the information broker sells you out to the person who's paying him more. Yeah, and that is, again, common. So that's, as much as I enjoyed the movie, there were very few surprises in terms of story structure for me at any time during it, even though it was it was written with the intention to surprise people in the audience. it I just found every attempt to surprise me failed because the hints that they laid out for it were not sufficiently subtle. It felt more like they were telegraphing and telling me in advance, hey, this is what we're going to reveal later, rather than the kind of thing where they do the reveal later and you go, seriously? And you go back and rewatch it and go, yeah, the clues were there, I just missed them. Yeah, probably the biggest reveal that actually caught me by surprise, well, not totally by surprise, I did see a few cute clues in advance, is the reveal of who uh, Rinsler is. And uh, like the final clue came in and actually, feel pardon the pun, in these like sequence right after they get out of the uh, end of line club and they uh, kind of jump a freight tra- jump a uh, solar sailor transport to get to the uh, uh, portal out where Kevin Flynn mentions that Clue can't create programs he can only repurpose them yeah and at which point everything kind of falls together in terms of who the true identity of Tron uh, of uh, Rinsler is oh, and I just let it slip <laughs> yeah well like we said you should have seen this beforehand. And that is common. We've had a few hints up to this point. Tron in the original had a four-dot sequence that was kind of like a very shortened T 
on his shirt to stand for Tron. That same four-dot sequence with three in a row and then one dead center below it is on Rinsler's outfit. We saw Rinsler's hesitation when Sam bled, so Rinsler has had experience with users before, as has Tron, having worked with Kevin Flynn so much. We saw when Tron stayed behind to protect Kevin Flynn's retreat and make sure he could get away, he actually picked up the second disc from another one of the characters and started fighting with two discs at that point. We hear Tron's dialogue at one point, and it is Bruce Boxleitner speaking as Rinsler through the modulation. I found it wasn't modulated enough to prevent recognition of Bruce Boxleitner's voice. So these were all the clues we have to that, including the line where, which was sort of their final piece of the puzzle, that clue cannot repurpose programs, or cannot create programs, he can only repurpose them. That's the last piece before we really know, yeah, Rinsler is Tron. And it's not long after this that Kevin Flynn sees Tron in action, and just outright recognizes him and says, Tron. So that reveal comes to Kevin Flynn later than it comes to the others. Which I'm okay with, because we've seen Kevin Flynn's idea was take off, leave Tron behind. He may not have seen enough of Rinsler to put it together and known which program was we was repurposed to become Rinsler, even if he was familiar with Rinsler in all that great detail anyway. And part of the reason that that could be, personally watching it, my biggest complaint about the movie is really the lack of Tron. He is the title character. He was one of the breakout stars in the first one. And he's not in this much, to the point that the first draft of the script didn't have Alan Bradley or a role for Bruce Boxleitner. It was his fans complaining that caused a rewrite to bring Alan Bradley in. So they were going to be using Rinsler instead of Tron as a repurposed Tron and not bring Boxleitner back. Which I feel would have been a mistake, and I'm glad that fans managed to weigh in enough and get them to change their minds about that. It just would have been nice to see a little more Tron, even though I have issues with the de-aging technology. They could have done more of that. I would have rather have seen Tron turn a little bit sooner. As they're going through and doing the big escape, they've got the major battle scene. We see Rinsler, Tron's persona, conflicted when he realizes he's being sent after Kevin Flynn. And we get that I fight for the users line, which feels like it's a callback to Tron and back to sort of his mantra from the first movie, even though that's actually the first time Bruce Boxleitner said the line. It was a third party program saying, oh, that's Tron, he fights for the users. In the first film, he never actually says he fights for the users until he uses that phrase to shake himself out of the Rizzler persona. And even then, as he's falling and possibly drowning to death, then the colors of his program and his lights change from that red to blue. So that's restored, but we never really see Tron in action as Tron at any point in this film. Yeah, I, again, we, we don't see Tron de-res, so again, some of the situations where when we get, or if we get a third movie sequel hook, we get more. We could get more Tron there. I hope we get more Tron there, but we'll get more on that in a bit. So we have the, um, after this sort of dogfight sequence thing with the, with, uh, the Flynn's and, uh, Quora escaping on a sort of flight simulator that's modeled after kind of some, something of a bomber. It's got a, got a tail gun. They make it to the portal so they can get out. And we get, finally get the, the real big face to face confrontation between Clue and Kevin Flynn. They, we'd seen them talk before, back when things were good. And at the start of the, where Clue takes control, kind of a great scene where Clue, who is overthrowing Kevin Flynn because he believes him for, instructed to form the perfect system. And he feels that Kevin Flynn is not, is moving away from perfection. Great scene where uh, Clue asks Kevin, am I to build the perfect system? And Kevin has this sort of confused, yeah? <laughs> not quite realizing that he's about he's about to get betrayed. And here we kind of have the uh, great scene here. It's kind of leads to one of the recurring themes in the film, which in terms of sort of father-son estrangement, in terms of 
Sam having to grow up without his dad and trying to figure out why his dad wasn't there for him. And then Clue trying to figure out what the expectations are of his his own sort of father in terms of the the program the user that made him. Yeah, so if there's I guess if there's any message to this movie, if anything, it's fathers suck. <laughs> I mean Kevin Flynn really has two offspring in Clue and Sam, and he failed both because he was focusing focusing on the wrong one each time. Mm-hmm. Right. He originally failed Sam because he was focused on Clue and got trapped in there. He didn't support Clue and make the amends with him because he was too focused on getting back to Sam. We've got Dillinger's son in here, who is clearly not a nice person. And I'm betting that the idea that I had in mind for the, the third film in this franchise would have had him as the primary villain. We have no idea what happened with Dillinger, but given what we know of Dillinger the first time, there you kind of expect a lousy father and a poorly raised son, because, you know, just reflecting the values that his father carried when he raised him. And Dillinger's values were not good. That was very clearly established the first time around. Indeed. And as we're seeing this one here again, it's a focus on family where, in the big confrontation, it's not an action. There's some action to it. But the victory is not determined by who punches who the hardest, or who makes clock parts fall out of the other guy's skull after cutting him open with a disc. It's really Kevin Flynn making amends and saying, I screwed up. I'm sorry. I'm going to try to fix it now. Which is a nice touch, because there's a lot of imperfect parents out there. And rather than abandoning or walking away, he's just taking ownership, saying, Yep, I made mistakes, but I want to fix them now. You did the best you could with the guidance I gave you. That guidance was flawed, because I was flawed. And they work it out that way and actually do a, a bit of a merger there, which is an interesting way to wrap it up, while still sending Sam and Cora on their way to effectively start their own family in the real world, which is very interesting. We've got Cora as the last survivor of a digital race being sent out into the real world, which is showing a lot of faith and trust on Kevin Flynn's part, because to me there's huge, huge biology questions that need to be answered, especially since the 3D representation of the DNA that we saw from her has three nodes, whereas mankind's have two. So he's basically saying, yeah, I know you're the last of your species, but yeah, go hang out with our species until you die and then your species really ends. You're toast anyway, because they're not going to be compatible. I really hope that whatever she uses for sustenance is still available in the real world, because otherwise he's basically saying, okay, go starve to death with my kid. But she does appear to have a very high tolerance for wind and getting struck with bugs as they go tooling around the countryside on a motorcycle with no helmets. And yeah, it is just interesting the way that she's presented here. She's very capable in terms of the fighting and the games themselves. But one of the other points that didn't really work for me was the love story between Sam and Korra. We see Sam slowly build the respect and get his interest in her, but it's like Cora's been infatuated with him from the start, and we don't know why. It's just, oh, you're Kevin's son? Boom, I'm in love with you. Yeah, this sounds like, the kind of, again, one of those things where as much as character, much character of woman as she got here, probably get more in, again, the third movie. So, like, definitely trying to set this up to be the first half of a two-parter that would bring the Tron series into a trilogy. Yeah, or possibly more. It's rumors have it that when this was pitched, they had a trilo- a new trilogy to make it a quadrilogy planned, and possibly beyond that. Now, in terms of the likelihood that that happens, if Hollywood has proven anything, is that they will make a sequel to a movie if they expect to make a profit off that sequel. Sequels, remakes, they don't care. I mean, we got how many Jaws movies, how many Friday the 13th movies, how many Saw movies. If they think there's money to be made, then they'll put the money in. They just pick what they think is going to be the safest bet for their investment dollar. So let's take a look at how safe this bet would be. When we talked about Tron, we did say that, yeah, it was profitable eventually through home video. 
but not in the original release. As is usual, we need to make about two or three times the budget in terms of the domestic gross before movies considered profitable, just because not all of the domestic gross goes back to the production company. A lot of it goes to the distributors and the exhibitors and the talent making it themselves. So Tron Legacy has an estimated production budget of $170 million. The total domestic gross, which should be two to three times that, so if they're going to make a sequel because this was profitable, we should be looking for $340 to $510 million. It was $172,062,763. So if you don't really understand the way the, the, these things play out in terms of budgets, people will look at that number and say, oh, it made $2 million, therefore it was profitable. No, this, even with the $228 million estimated foreign box office on top of it, this did not make money in theaters. If it did well enough on home video, then yeah, it might have been pushed into the profitability range, but not by a huge margin. I don't expect to see a third Tron film in the near future. My kind of counterpoint to this is while Tron, Leg is, Tron Legacy made a lot more money uh, internationally and while the the distributing company doesn't necessarily make as much of that back as they would for domestic releases, uh, another movie that had the same sort of pattern uh, did well as Pacific Rim, which has already been greenlit for not only a sequel, but a tie-in animated series to go with it. So there, there's always possibilities. Yeah, there is. Pacific Rim... I mean, you're right, it didn't do as well. It had a production budget of $190 million, and the total domestic gross was barely 102 It didn't even make that mark, with a foreign of $309 million. So it did make $400 million. So if you look at that, the total gross is a little over double, which is true, but that's also Warner Brothers and not Disney. Disney likes wider profit margins than that. However, they're also the However, admittedly, I don't know as much about the how the actual contracts work on the division side of things. It's entirely possible that Disney, being Disney, is able to get a bit more of the international theatrical take than, than other companies would, particularly because they... In th they've been dealing these kind of deals for, in some cases, a lot longer than some of the other distributors out, uh, distributors and studios out there. That's true, and that's part of what helped Pacific Rim get its green light is because the studio is able to work a deal, so the studio itself made money, even though it was distributed by Warner Brothers. It was a more independent studio, and they were able to get a big enough upfront deal that that helped the studio made its profit, so they're saying, okay, we'll do that again. The question then is, are they going to have the same distributors, and how well distributed will the sequels be? What kind of marketing push will they have? Tron Legacy did have some marketing. You could find action figures for Tron Legacy. You could actually get light cycles that drive up walls and the, the Tron Legacy merchandising. So they did a nice job with that, but with the December 17th release date, it didn't hit it quite as big as the summer. You don't see as much of a merchandise tie-in when you come out that close to Christmas. You could see big merchandise over the summer, where the parents are looking for toys to keep the kids busy for the next few days or weeks. And you can see some pretty big tie-ins when you got it in November and people are getting hyped long before the movie comes out and give you enough time to go shopping before Christmas. A lot of kids don't decide that they want the toys for a movie until after they've seen the movie. Some before, for sure, but some of them are after. And with a December 17th release date, that's pushing it tight. You're not going to have the same sort of Christmas push as you would with uh, Thanksgiving or U.S. Thanksgiving release in November. So I'm not going to say we'll never see a Tron sequel. I'm going to say it's unlikely that we're going to see one in the near future. It could well be that the next time we see Tron, rather than being a sequel with these guys, they're just going to go straight up reboot and just start from scratch. Hmm. Only time will tell. But one thing that's worth mentioning, though, uh, as far as the other things coming out of Tron Legacy, is Joseph Kosinski, who basically after this went on to make another fairly successful science fiction movie, Oblivion. 
with Tom Cruise and Morgan Freeman. Also, do you want to talk about the award reception for the movie? We'll talk about it pretty quick. Cause it, it, it got a few awards. Probably the, the big thing I was mentioning is the awards it didn't get nominated for. Riddle Tron did not do well in the Academy Awards. It didn't get nominated for visual effects because people thought the CGI was cheating. Yeah, it was actually disqualified when it was submitted because it said, no, the use of computers is cheating. So they were not allowed to have their name on the ballot for people to vote for. Yeah, and for the Academy Awards the year it came out, it got nominated for Best Sound Editing, but did not get nominated for Best Visual Effects, and it also did not get nominated for Best Score, which I find somewhat surprising because it is a truly phenomenal score. It's outside of the Star Wars movies. It's the first score I went actively hunting out doubt, and putting down for the physical album like through my local record stores because I'm in Portland and we still have record stores. But we compare that to Tron Legacy. Yeah, see, um, it, it did do well in the Saturn Awards, though. Jeff Bridges won for Best Actor, nominated for Best Science Fiction Film, nominated for Best Music. It did, like, nominated for a whole slew of stuff in the Saturn Awards for that year. So, however, it did, however, as far as the Saturn Awards go, it did run into this problem of it's up against Inception for the Best Film Award, which it beat, uh, which beat Tron Legacy. It was up against for Best Supporting Actor. Okay, I guess some of these are ones where I, I kind of question why they got why they beat, got beat. But I will say that Jeff Bridges did win in Best Actor, beating Robert Downey Jr. in Iron Man 2. So For Iron Man 2, I would agree with that, yeah. So you're for Best Music. It probably beat, it probably got beat by, yep, Hans Zimmer in Inception. So, yeah. Best Costume Design, Alice in Wonderland. And it also did not get nominated for a Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation, which, so you got what nominated was in that, in the running for that. I forget if they'd, find, if they'd split off back into long and short form by then. If they were still, if it was still all one category, maybe among the situations where they were up against Doctor Who, where up against a whole bunch of Doctor Who, so. Okay, they were back at the long form by, long and short form by then. Yeah, they're up against... Inception, Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows Part 1, How to Train Your Dragon, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and Toy Story 3 for the Hugos. Yeah, which is some tough competition. Yeah, so I can, I can see why it didn't get fit in. And if they came out a year later, they were still in their problem of being nominated, of the other films that have been competing for just nomination slots, including Game of Thrones Season 1. So, still, the film, it didn't get, a, it didn't get the, the big nominations for awards that everyone pays attention to, like the, like the Academy Awards. I mean, they get some awards. The Austin Film Critics Association gave Daft Punk a Best Original Score award, so somebody recognized it, <coughs> at least. So, I think that pretty much covers all the bases. Yeah, so it actually made it through the first round of the tournament, when we ran it on the Science Fiction Film Tournament through Bureau 42, which is, of course, where these podcasts are coming from. Yep, it uh, beat Man in the White Suit, and then ran into the unstoppable juggernaut that is, no, not quite unstoppable juggernaut, but the juggernaut that is The Incredibles in round three, and got eliminated 78% to 16. So, I mean, that, that, that's kind of to be expected. It's a, it's a Pixar movie. It's a Pixar superhero movie. It's Pixar's only superhero movie. It's probably one of the most highly regarded Pixar films that doesn't involve the words Toy Story in the title. It is. It's That's one I was voting for Incredibles as well. And then Incredibles ran into Aliens, and that pretty much settles that. Actually, looking at the results, I think Tron Legacy was one of our wildcard entries. It wasn't part of round one. So it was one of the ones when we first started the tournament, it hadn't been released yet. We put it as a wild card near the end of the tournament when people could see it as an option. And that's why it ended up going up against the man in the white suit. It was one of those eight wild cards. 
And it did take out the man in the white suit, but yeah, as you said, Incredibles crushed it pretty effectively in a vote that probably surprised next to no one. Yeah, pretty much. Probably the same sort of thing with the vote that knocked out Incredibles. Aliens is... I'm not going to say it's one of the most influential, not to say it's the, the most influential military science, actually, no, I'll take that back. I will say that Aliens is the most influential military science fiction film of all time, but we'll get to that when we do the podcast about Aliens. Well, we already did the podcast about Aliens. Oh, we did. Okay. Uh, my, my mind is going, Dave, I can feel it. <laughs> yeah, that one we haven't done yet. Yeah, that one we haven't done, we should probably get around to doing it at some point. But yeah, Aliens, so I can see that happening. See, completely understanding Aliens clobbering Incredibles. So, I think that covers pretty much all the bases. It does, so we'd like to thank you again for joining us. Now, as we said, we're going to try to keep releasing these every couple of weeks for the next little while and planning ahead and working ahead to get more sort of in the pipe and ready to go. Feedback, as always, can be sent to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. And we're going to keep going, but the one limiter that we are finding when we're discussing these films ourselves is that both people in the conversation need to have access to the movie. And that's not necessarily true for every film on the list. So when you're sending feedback, if you'd like to sort of throw your hat in the ring and say, hey, I'd like to talk about Enemy Mine, or which is just the one I happen to be looking at, anything like that, we'll take a look at it. Because if regular hosts, only one of them has access to it, we'll need that second voice from somewhere. And we do want to keep the, the greatest science fiction and greatest TV film or tournament podcasts as two-voice podcasts. Yeah, so you may end up, so also for future podcasts, you may see, end up hearing some voices who you may not be familiar with in terms of the Bureau 42 podcasts, so. Yeah, in fact, I think that's pretty likely, because there's already one on schedule, but not yet announced, where I will not be a part of it, since I do not have access to that film. All right. So once again, thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks. <laughs>